Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep intellectual dive into the academic research and behavioral science of what really gets people to take pro-environmental action and behavior. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and a designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of How to Save the World and Zero Waste to Fire. If you haven't already, sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com to get more free resources about how you can apply gamification and behavior design to your environmental cause. Today we are going to be chatting with Anais Vosky. She's a researcher at Stanford University studying the effect that seeing the Earth from space has on astronauts. Her paper is titled The Ecological Significance of the Overview Effect, Environmental Attitudes and Behaviors in Astronauts. This thing called the overview effect is what astronauts experience when they are viewing the Earth from space. It's credited with not only influencing astronauts to care more for the planet, but it's also thought to be part of the critical bedrock or keystone moments that have helped cultivate the modern environmental movement. This conversation is going to be a bit different to our usual talks about data-driven action design, as we'll be talking about a deeper and more qualitative emotional experience of this fascinating topic called ecological transcendence and what this could mean for our practical day-to-day climate and sustainability daily work. This concept of eco or earth-like or sustainability transcendence is really exciting and inspiring. And what is it? It's talking about the awe of the planet, about emotions like wonder, the interconnectedness of all life, the sense of responsibility we have, not just to ourselves and our families, but to this whole planet, to the whole ecosystem, the fragility of the planet as it hangs there like a blue marble out in space. This is not just intellectual and academic understanding. This is a deep sense of spiritual and emotional transcendence and connection that we have with our planet. That's part of the intrinsic motivation, the core identity, the inner self that we have that drives us to do sustainability work and that filters through into the day-to-day pro-environmental actions that all of us are trying to support. The reason why you should take some time and space to consider why this type of ecological transcendence experience is important to our work in sustainability and climate action design is because in order to make the ecological sustainable future come true, We need to deeply understand the psychology of humans so we can develop our campaigns and our projects and startups to be able to hack into the motivational core that drives human beings. The way it's usually been done is by looking at government policy, very powerful, but also can be a bit of a blunt instrument and can be slow and can be limited in what it can do. So what we get left with is we have to educate people about all of these environmental problems. And that's generally the tone and the strategy that the environmental movement has used. We need to educate people about climate change. We need to educate people about the plastic in the ocean. And the hypothesis is if we educate people intellectually, those people will care. But even for deeply committed environmentalists, even just intellectually knowing about the planet and emotionally caring about the planet is not enough to actually drive action. And that's where we come into the behavioral sciences of action design. But there is another third dimension. 
And that third dimension is the truly transformative spiritual transcendent experiences that we have with the planet. And that can't necessarily be captured by just learning more about air pollution data or even the type of behavioral and gamification hacks that I like to practice. I believe that every single human really can truly be connected with the ecological transcendence, the wonder and the awe of the planet. And they can be connected to that inner part of themselves that bleeds out into all of their behaviors. That is the true power of environmental behavior design, where we can tap into this intrinsic motivational core and design systems for it to spill out into our behaviors. And what I want you to get out of this episode and this research into the overview effect is to really build up the intrinsic powerful message behind your project or your campaign. And don't be shy about telling the really deep, powerful, big whys of why we're here. But take the time to tie it all in together with this keystone, this cornerstone of ecological transcendence. And that is how we build a powerful movement of sustainability that's not just about telling people to use less plastic bags or ride a bike more often or eat less meat and not having a climate movement that's just about talking about the doom of climate change and terrible fossil fuel companies. But let's build a movement that is about building the future. The future is the canvas and we are the artist. This is our job to tell this story building a planet that lives in symbiosis with humans and technology and nature and building these concepts of awe, wonder, interconnectedness, responsibility, fragility, all the ingredients of ecological transcendence into our movement, into our story and into our motivation, your motivation, my motivation for why we're here and why we get up every day and we do this work. Now let's dive into the episode with the delightful Anais Vosky from Stanford University. Welcome to the show, Anais. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, great. It's a super exciting topic to talk about. Usually we talk about data and behavioral science. It's very practical and measurement driven, but this is a really wonderful topic to explore because it's more qualitative and resonant or more deeply emotional topic. But the first question I wanted to ask, which is how I start everybody, which is we're all people who are working as city sustainability managers, working on startup projects. We're really trying to make change happen. And there's not very much awareness of environmental psychology in the actual practical environmental world. Like what's the problem? What's this big gap when we're all trying to change the world and nobody's ever heard of what environmental psychology is? Right. So I think the data and the numbers around like the science of climate change and biodiversity loss is really important. But maybe what something that we miss in the discussions is that it's all human centric, right? Like it's us humans where all of this is coming from and where all this is happening from. So I really think what's a really important takeaway is that there is a psychological basis to these crises that are happening. And I call them crises because we can refer to it generally as an environmental crisis. And I think there's a lot of focus on climate change, rightfully so. But I would definitely also say biodiversity loss as the ecological crisis is also just as significant. So when I talk about the crisis, I just want to make sure that I'm being clear that I mean both of those. So I think maybe what gets missed in a lot of the conversations is that, yes, we absolutely will need top-down solutions that are going to be data-driven and adaptation and mitigation-driven. But it's still everyday humans. It's billions of us existing on this planet. 
And there has to be a bottom-up effort as well to really maximize that mitigation effectiveness. That's the only way I think we're going to make a dent in this problem. Yeah, and I think when it, most of the people who work in sustainability have come from a science and an engineering background, and so we're trained to think as scientists and engineers, and so we tend to see everything almost like it's a bit of a machinery. We just need to take that road out and switch that car over and bring in that particular taxation and just swap those garbage bins and just make it that tractor different without realizing that all of the things that created this are actually humans and their human psychology. And we're not rational entities that just do things because there's a particular best way to do it. We're driven by all the social and all the, the emotional forces that are behind those. And if you just go in with a rational argument, it's not what is going to drive people. Yeah, exactly. We're humans. We're not machines. We have emotions. We have perceptions. We have motivations for doing things the way that we do. It's really important, I think, to address that psychological basis of this crisis as well, because if we want to create lasting change, we are also going to have to change. I just think that's an inevitable part of the solution. If you could just encapsulate the big message or the big salient understanding that you got from this research paper, what would that be? I will preface this by saying that a lot of what has been emerging in the current psychological research is that the very negative sort of stark messaging around climate change and biodiversity loss doesn't necessarily work psychologically, which is actually understandable because if you really look at the numbers, it's scary. We're not doing super well. And it has this paralyzing effect on a lot of people, which is you know completely understandable. And I have sometimes myself experienced that as well. So I think what this paper and this sort of direction of research does well in is sort of bringing in that positive perspective of thinking about these issues. And as the astronaut Ron Guerin said during the interviews as well, the awe and wonder produced by this perspective of Earth is really like a positive launching pad, so to say, for environmental conversations. That is a pretty big and productive shift for these kinds of conversations. Yeah, and I found that really fascinating by the paper that basically you can put environmental communications in one bucket of fear and doom. And then there's another bucket that I've been showing as a contrast, which is solutions and imagination and optimism. But it's also still very much in the practical kind of bucket. Like, here's a green wall. Here's a solar panel. Come on, guys, we can do it. But what I saw is like a third bucket, you could call it, which is this dimension of awe and wonder. And that was a really core theme of this awe and this wonder reading through the paper. I mean, I hadn't really seen it that way. And I might start describing it in these three things now, like adding like a third dimension. But in terms of your particular paper, what I find interesting about reading these environmental psychology papers is that each one does something a little bit different to all the research that has been done before. And, you know, you'll say in the introduction, this is everything that's done before, but this one angle hadn't quite been studied before, which is what we're getting into. What was that for you, the nuance that nobody had written about before? Yeah, so Frank White is the author who coined the term the overview effect in 1987. So obviously my starting point was reading his book and the latter third part of his book, which is also called like the overview effect, just contains a lot of astronaut interviews. So my starting point was there. The definition, which is that it's a cognitive shift in awareness experienced by astronauts. The definition contains a line that says they also experience a renewed sense of commitment to environmentalism or to the earth. 
as I was reading the interviews, there wasn't much analysis of how exactly that happens, whether qualitatively or quantitatively. And I was doing some research online, just trying to find if anyone has looked at this issue. And I found a few media articles that were isolated cases. There was one with a space tourist. He talked about, oh, when I got back from my space flight, I changed all the light bulbs in my house, for example. But it was more like isolated cases. So I sort of realized there has been no systematic study it really piqued my curiosity because I felt like there was something there, maybe call it an intuition or I don't know. I just wanted to explore whether there was more to it. If there was a more significant environmental dimension that perhaps has not been researched enough in terms of this on wonder. Right. So it was just these random anecdotes that you would see yeah. and you wanted to kind of pull it into more of a methodology. The way that academic studies do, we put people through the test and see what happens, you know, before and after. And I just want to just ask about definitions. There's this word in there, because there's always all these words that none of us normal people understand, which is neurophenomenological study. I mean, I think I kind of understand what phenomenological means, but could you just explain what it means? And also when you put neuro in front of it, what that word is? Right. So from an epistemology perspective, it's just basically examining a phenomenon or thinking that there might be a phenomenon that you just have to find the methodology to sort of try to identify the parameters of that phenomenon. So the overview effect itself is a phenomenon like that because it leads to a cognitive shift. And it's also something that has been identified in enough astronauts that it actually constitutes a phenomenon. Okay, but I thought phenomenological was like how I would explain how I'm experiencing the phenomenon. Like, oh, that makes me happy. That's my phenomenological experience. Is that right? Or have I got it totally wrong? Based on my understanding, in this sense, when I was doing the study, I was trying to identify, is there a phenomenon happening here? Mm -hmm. And again, that's based on astronauts' firsthand descriptions of describing their experience. Oh, like, is there a phenomenon or is there not a phenomenon? Yes, purely from a very basic epistemological perspective. Is this actually a thing or is it not a thing? Right. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a simpler way that actually makes it a little bit easier to understand. And like, what is a cognitive shift? It kind of makes sense. Oh, yeah, you have a cognitive shift. Like, how would you describe that? And why does it matter? Why should we think about environmental change in terms of even the concept of a cognitive shift? Yeah. Okay. I think that's a great question because when I talked about there's a psychological basis to the crisis a way to address that from the bottom up is that we are going to need a collective cognitive shift. So the way astronauts experience it is it's how awe and wonder affects their perception and their emotions and the way they afterwards view the planet. It's both a perceptual and conceptual vastness that is connected to this awe and wonder experience. And it's more, I guess, stronger iterations. My paper talks about this a little bit. It even has some self-transcendent characteristics. So it's a very intense emotional experience that afterwards has a lasting effect, I guess, on the way you perceive the world and the way you go about it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, totally. But do you think a cognitive shift, just in terms of thinking about this terminology, right? And I'm trying to like, you know, get this terminology out into the people that are coming up with programs and stuff every day. I mean, you could probably just have like a little cognitive shift, like a baby one, you know, like, oh, yeah, I think that cups are wasteful and I want to just not waste cups as much. I suppose that would also be called a cognitive shift, right? Or you could have this really deeply transcendent, almost spiritual kind of cognitive. They must be called a cognitive shift, but it's really just trying to get through to some kind of deeper intrinsic space that someone holds inside. 
Yeah, absolutely. I would say that a cognitive shift is obviously a spectrum and there's maybe lesser ones, as you said, like maybe your attitude and your behavior changes about the use of plastic cups to maybe the other end of the spectrum where there's this self-transcendent, you know, life altering kind of emotional experience that just changes everything for you. I think that that sweet spot in terms of the research, we're seeing whether it's a significant enough of a cognitive shift. And that's what I think is going to be the key that whether it's a bigger emotional event in which it's one major cognitive shift that has a lasting effect, or in some cases, and this was also the case with some of the astronauts who came in with higher pre-space flight environmental attitudes and behaviors, it could be a more gradual cognitive shift where it adds up basically to something significant, something that actually results in real world change or a behavior adaptation. Right. It's really interesting to dive into this. And we'll get into more of like the awe and the wonder and the transcendence in a bit, because that's really the real meat of what you're getting into. But just to understand this dimension of like attitude and behavior, what are they called? They're called EABs, right? Environmental Mm -hmm. attitudes and behaviors. And all these words kind of like sound the same, I think, when you first look at them. But an attitude is actually not a behavior. Like they're two different things, right? Can you talk a bit how just the world of environmental psychology defines attitude and how it defines behavior and how they're like interconnected and how they're different and they don't always mean the same thing? Yes. Environmental attitudes is more, I would say, how you think about environmental issues, how you approach them, what your opinion about it is, to put it in more everyday terms. And environmental behaviors would be what you actually do in your everyday life and in the real world, be that recycling or using reusable cutlery. And there's both in terms of that intent and impact oriented environmental behaviors, which is an important distinction because you can be very well intentioned in terms of the intent oriented and you know want to reduce your impact, but maybe it's not translating to measurable difference. Or maybe someone who is not that environmental, but they don't live in a Western country, so they're not consciously living a sustainable lifestyle, but their impact could be much lower, for example. So that's just sort of an important distinction. But anyways, yeah, I'm getting into the complexities of how no, that's what we're here for. We're here to totally yeah. nerd out because nobody nerds out on these papers in this kind of area and puts it out. So we're kind of going deep, not light. It's cool. Do you think that an environmental attitude is essential to drive behavior or can you just like hack behavior without getting people to care about the planet? And in the context of this idea of the value action gap, like I'm always talking about the value action gap to people. Everyone's like, we have to get people to care. We have to get people to educated about climate change. And I'm like, listen, everybody, You can get people educated and care about the planet all you want, but if you're not functioning as a behavior or an action designer, it's not going to happen. However, when I read these papers, it says that environmental attitudes do influence behavior. So you kind of got these two worldviews that like, oh yeah, we do really need to get people to care about the planet. And then there's this other world that you don't really need to get people to care that much. You just need to get them to do whatever it is. Yeah. And I think you're asking about a very interesting issue because it's a little bit, maybe controversial is not the right word, but it's definitely that link between environmental attitudes and behaviors is actually quite debated in the scholarly community. Some studies have shown that there's definitely a link between them. Some studies have shown exactly as you mentioned that perhaps that link is not as strong as we thought. In my personal opinion, I do think addressing environmental attitudes is a great sort of precursor to really leading up to what actually matters, right? Which is the behavior. Because you can have a positive pro-environmental attitude 
all you want, but we're really looking for is a real world outcome, something that's actually measurable and that will make a difference. I think in order to do that, attitudes that you develop about the environment have to be actionable. And this is where that positivity comes in and that feeling of that hope. People will behave in sustainable ways if they think that what they're doing makes sense and if it amounts to something. So I think the attitude being actionable is actually the key thing. Well, because I've been thinking about this topic a bit just more recently, just kind of in the last month, really. Like I've spent the last five years on this whole like gamification behavior design trip. I'm just like, how do we give people stickers when they do the thing? And how do we like design things to be fun and engaging to actually really sort of like hack the behavior side of it? But then you still run into some brick walls with that. There's still like only so much that can be done with behavior design. And I think there's also a little bit of a brick wall that can also be done with just like education and environmental concern. You can teach somebody about climate change and you can get them to cry about the turtle with the thing in its nose. And I'm crying over the trees and maybe I've got like a sticker chart. But I was just thinking about the really big changes that you have to make to get a large amount of funding to bring in like a law, like say a bit like new carbon tax law or to get a big property developer to do something like, for example, building this building that's behind me in my background. I don't think anybody built this building because they thought they were going to get rich or famous or because, I don't know, it was gamified. I think the architect who designed this building and the property developers that got behind them, I think they did it for these deeper transcendent qualities and these meanings. I think that powerful human drive to put your life's work into something incredible. There's a guy who builds all these green walls. His name's Patrick Blunk. He invented the green wall and he's done these enormous, like multi-story high, really incredible green walls. He's been his whole life devoted trying to figure out the watering systems and the geotextiles and what plants will grow. And he's a botanist. You know, these are like decade after decades of work. And I've been thinking if I've got to convince a property developer or a business owner or someone in government to be like, y'all, it's time to put $100 million behind doing something like really fancy, something really big. The regular stuff is not going to cut it and it doesn't stack up financially. You can't be like, and you'll get a 12% return on investment because it's got more trees. It's not, it's going to be expensive. You know, you have to go into it with some, almost like a vision of a Disneyland, a much deeper force. I mean, this is just even in parallel to me finding your paper and us scheduling this call. I've been thinking my whole toolbox of everything I've ever known is probably not enough. I got to hit really deep. I got to get somebody to be like, life changed gonna put a hundred million bucks into something crazy just because it fascinates me and it's my life's purpose and I want to do something profound and I've been in the space of trying to imagine how we manufacture that in people how do you take somebody and put them through that and then somebody who really has influence they have the ability to write a hundred million dollar check and just be like I'm gonna really do something meaningful so do you think this concept of manifesting in people awe and wonder is the thing that we've got to do? Is that the connection between this overview effect that we want to work through this lens of awe and wonder and how we could maybe create that out of the astronaut sphere? Could you just talk a bit more detail about what this awe and wonder is? And the astronauts were saying there's all these beautiful phrases through this paper. It's really wonderful to read. Sorry, that's a real jumble of a question of a million things, but I'll stop talking now. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I just want to say, I really think you pinpointed the essence of what this research should mean or the future direction of this research. I do think it's absolutely about that awe and wonder, seeing Earth from that outer space perspective and specifically actually low Earth orbit, because that's what these astronauts experience. And there is actually a uniqueness to that perspective that I will get into in a second. I was doing these interviews and I really went into it with very open-ended questions not 
even asking directly about what was your environmental attitude and behavior before, really just trying to get a sense of, is there more here? And a lot of the material that came out was actually very surprising to me. I will preface this by saying that there was a study done before that tried to stimulate sort of that earth view with VR contrasted by just the general outer space view of just another celestial body. And they found that for inducing that awe response, it was the earth view that was the significant one. So there's something very special about us humans seeing our own planet from that outer space perspective and not just any other celestial body. So I do think that's significant. What my study found was that this perspective as part of the overview effect, it really adds a unique element to environmentalism, to speak very broadly, which is not part of any terrestrial element of environmentalism. And what I mean by that is some of the astronauts themselves mentioned, you can go to the Grand Canyon or you can do underwater diving and you can have an awe and wonder experience. But the intensity and the uniqueness that that outer space perspective provides, that's a unique something a little bit new to environmentalism. And that's sort of that line that I want to pursue further in my research. So what I mentioned earlier about the low Earth orbit perspective, something that I was absolutely not at all expecting to hear was that they can see anthropogenic destruction from the International Space Station with their own eyes. So what that means is they can actually see environmental destruction happening in real time that's now visible from the ISS. When I first heard that, I just... I don't know, let's just take a second to really let that register that these astronauts themselves are saying that our destruction is visible from space now. They mentioned seeing, you know, coral bleaching, deforestation. Two of the astronauts mentioned witnessing in real time because they had two missions a few years apart, the disappearance of the Aral Sea, which has been coined one of the greatest environmental disasters in modern history, for example. So it's really that perspective of here's the bigger picture. And now you can also see this destruction happening from space. It's that bad. And yet it's beautiful. So it's that juxtaposition of the beauty of the planet, you know, that on wonder feelings and emotions versus seeing that destruction. And I think that is what potentially will make those emotions actionable that, wow, this is beautiful. How do I do something about it? How do I protect it? Another phrase that was coming up, I actually copied it into my notes, which was a tremendous and perhaps absolute conceptual vastness. So just like what you were saying before is that you can have these really salient and profound experiences on the earth, but only when you zoom out and you see the whole thing, you get this dimension of vastness and this contrast with this juxtaposition of fragility. I thought that was really interesting. It almost helps you become a systems thinker, right? One of the first people I actually interviewed on this podcast was about systems thinking, like putting people on like a systems thinking scale, like how much do you think about how connected everything is and how much do you not? And found that people who were better at naturally systems thinking were better at environmental behaviors. And I suppose it's a natural thing to catalyze a systems thinking kind of worldview, you know, through that vastness that you may not see anywhere else. And then in contrast it against this idea of it also being fragile, I mean, that's a really unique kind of emotional impression to make on somebody. Yes, absolutely. Maybe this is where my background comes in because on a hobby level, I've been really into outer space and, you know, like astrophysics and stuff. And it really is that infinite vastness of just seeing our tiny little existence, our planet, you know, in that grander context 
of space and the fact that we don't know what's beyond the visible universe, for example. I mean, it's just really just cognitively, it's mind boggling. But I think it's such a unique context that I think it gets people's thoughts and emotions going. And one of the astronauts described him just in terms of the fragility, because you brought that up. I love that imagery of one of the astronauts saying that he would sometimes imagine just a hypothetical, fantastic giant just coming by Earth and just blowing away the atmosphere. And in that second, all life on Earth would cease to exist. I mean, that really puts it into, again, coming back to the context. It really puts it into context, I think. Making this podcast is a joy, but it takes a lot of resources to produce these episodes. And I wanted to take a moment to ask for your help. I've set up a Patreon page where you can donate any amount of your choosing. Patreon is a website where you can make monthly donations to support your favorite artists and content creators. And I've put together all of these fun perks on my Patreon page. You can get copies of my book, my video course, new EcoCity artworks, monthly group trainings from me in my gamified planet group and even imagination workshops for kids go to patreon.com forward slash katie patrick to sign up and make a monthly donation of your choice another way to support the podcast is to book a 90 minute idea storming call with me where you and i will get together on zoom and we will hash out all of the ideas that i can help you with on behavior design action design storytelling creative production and how to build a following that will really make your project come alive and get traction send me a d or an email if you'd like to book an idea storming call and if it works for you please do jump on to patreon.com forward slash katie patrick to sign up to make a monthly contribution and check out all of the fun perks that i've put together there are many other ways that you can help without spending money one way is to jump onto apple podcasts and leave up to a five star review if you already have the book how to save the world please leave a review on amazon or on audible if you see a post i've made on social media add a comment or a like or a share a simple like or an emoji really does make a meaningful difference if you're enjoying this episode click the share button now and share it with your friends or even take a screen grab and post it as an instagram story you can tag me on instagram at katie patrick hello send me a direct message and let me know how i can support you let me know if i can share or comment or write a review for anything that you're working on we're here together in a community and the support goes both ways Thank you for listening, thank you for your support, and thank you for your interest in the fascinating world of environmental psychology. Now, back to the show. How unique we are and how beautiful and amazing this planet is, and therefore, what do we have to do to protect it? I think it's the context. That's almost the key word in this. Outer space provides that context for the importance and the scale, I think, of what we're doing. Yeah, I remember reading that. That was a really cute little imagery of looking at that fragility. I mean, I was thinking about this topic and also thinking about it through this idea of like buckets of ways of getting to people, because we're working on like a much deeper kind of emotional transformation that it gives a sense of the only thing that I could equate it to that is a sense of love for the planet. Like you look at it, you just love it. You want to almost like manufacture in people or connect. Manufacture is probably not the best word, but let's assume it's already there, that everybody has this intrinsic potential to develop this to kind of like deep emotional connection with this bigger systems, earth style of thinking. 
the only thing I can compare it to is like when you have a baby and you hold your own child for the first time, you have this sense of protection. Like it's my job now. Like I will die. I'll do anything. I'll give everything I have to protect and both nurture this child and then you put them to sleep and then they're so beautiful and perfect in the sleep and this sense comes over you and there's really nothing I think that happens in the world that you can compare to that idea of feeling like caring for your own sleeping child that's that kind of like transcendent and I thought of the earth it's kind of the same thing I get a similar sensation you look at the earth and you're like all this caring and responsibility and love that I have for my daughter that that's really what we want to unleash growth kind of like sprout that kind of thing and Maybe the overview effect is the only way to get there. Maybe it's the one thing we need to use more of. I wanted to ask you about transcendence. I recently learned this word. I didn't really know what it meant. What does transcendence mean in this context? So I don't think I'm completely qualified to answer that question because my literature review briefly sort of touches on this characterization of the overview effect as an awe and wonder experience with some self-transcendent characteristics. So as I mentioned before, it's a very strong emotional experience that then has long-term lasting measurable effects on people. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but in this case, I mean, that definitely fits the bill of the overview effect, at least in terms of how it affects astronauts. Exactly that sort of interconnectedness and that feeling of one with humanity. I mean, these are previously described characteristics of the overview effect. It's exactly, you hit the nail on the head with those sorts of emotions. Well, yeah, I understood transcendence is when you get to a point in life, instead of being inward focused on your own life and your own life goals and your own status or ego, you become outward focused. Like you're worried about everybody else. It's all about what you can contribute to others rather than what you are in yourself. And I think that's the line. That's when you hop, <laughs> you go up Maslow's hierarchy and then you hop across into the transcendent layer. But I was also thinking about this because I've been reading this book on Maslow's hierarchy recently. It's like you go up this sort of levels of consciousness into transcendence. So there's kind of like an environmental consciousness. We have some like an environmental Maslow's hierarchy, you know, like first you have to have food and shelter. Then you start worrying about like cups and maybe eating less meat and the little things. Then you might go through like an anti-capitalist phase or whatever. And then you might be, oh, yeah, like maybe I should start an impact startup or something. There's all these little phases you go through. And then maybe at the tip, there's this much bigger worldview environmental transcendence when you are free of one's own self-ego and you are just a creative force living to contribute to the earth and all of humanity. Do you think it could work? Like there is an environmental Maslow's hierarchy of transcendence? That's a very interesting way of looking at it. I have not heard of that before. But just hearing about it, my first impression is that that makes perfect sense. So what actually led me to this research, I read an article by Peter Hay titled The Ecological Impulse. And basically, the article just sort of posits that there exists a trigger for everyone to make them care about the environment. That's really simplifying it, but that was the essence of the article. And that made me think that it's sort of self-evident that I do think there's a way to grab everyone with the environmental message. The question is the how. I firmly believe, and I think it's really important in terms of remaining positive and wanting to reach people, is that everyone can be reached. It's just a matter of how. And that's where I think exactly this top of the hierarchy as well that you're talking about. That's where this outer space perspective really comes in as something that is unique to environmentalism. I mean, now this has actually been shown. It's just something that gets people excited as well. As Ron Guerin said, and Frank White also said in his book, astronauts often hold a special status in society where 
people will uh, sit in to listen to a lecture from them in the way that they might not from even a professor or anyone else. So astronauts are sort of uniquely positioned, I think, to raise awareness about this. But that's also because there is this general fascination with space and space exploration and this perspective of the Earth, exactly because it's so exciting and it's so unique. So I think where I see this fitting in is exactly at that top of that hierarchy, where it's emotionally, it's a strong reaction. And I personally think it's the best way to grab the most amount of people with the messaging. That's the goal. Yeah, I've got some more questions later on about getting astronauts out into the world and kids and stuff. But I thought usually about this time we open up for questions. Can anybody put their hand up in the Zoom or wants to write any questions? Although the hand is a little bit better than the written one because it's a bit hard for me to read and talk at the same time. So I think Chris Skinner was the first one. Uh, yeah, sure. I really enjoyed the paper. I really enjoyed the interview. Thank you. So in your paper, you mentioned using VR for this and one thing, I've done a lot of work with public engagement in VR, and one of the things we do to test it is we use Google Earth VR, which is for free bit of software, it's brilliant. And you can see the Earth zoomed out from that, and from the reactions of my colleagues on that, then I would say, absolutely, it's capable of doing that, I think. But you just need to be careful to separate out the effects of kind of first-time use of VR, because there's, there's some research which found that if people are using VR for the first time, then you can forget any sort of learning outcomes from that. So that was the first thing I just wanted to say. The second one was about when it comes to physical exhibits, do you think we can manifest this effect with physical design and graphics? So just thinking of something Sarah has put in the chat about trying to get this sense of awe and wonder through design of space and exhibits. Do you think this is something you can get across? Hmm. Okay, that's a very interesting question. I'm just going to quickly talk about VR because so actually I started my PhD like three weeks ago. And I'm here at Stanford, I joined the Virtual Human Interaction Lab, precisely because the way I want to continue my research is to figure out how to scale these effects for decision makers and the general population using VR, because it's not realistic to expect to send a few more hundred people to space. I mean, space tourism is increasing, but still, and of course, there's an environmental impact to that as well. So far, I think there has been some studies about VR and awe and even the overview effect. And I think it's a very promising medium, which has been enabled by this recent technological development. And that's kind of segueing into the second question that you asked, which is, I absolutely think it's doable in an exhibit. But I think what's very important to get that on wonder is it has to contain that either perceptual or the conceptual vastness, which is usually quite difficult to do without moving imagery because it has to even give that physical perspective of the vastness that really leads to that cognitive effect. So I would just try to think about ways, if not using VR, which I personally think is sort of the best approach we currently have here on earth, but at least moving imagery or even just, I don't know anything about making exhibits, to be fair, but uh, just somehow widen the physical space to, you know, say this tiny dot here is the earth or making even just a copy of the earth stand here. So this would replicate seeing earth from the ISS and here's all the environmental damage that you can see with the naked eye, something like that. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. I think there's an exhibit which is going around the UK at the moment called Gaia by Luke Jerram, where it's a big replica mm -hmm. of in huge spaces i'll put a link in the chat but okay. i was just kind of wondering sort of whether we could scale that down so it's for those of us who don't have access to 
cathedrals, basically. So. And I do just want to quickly mention the modern environmental movement, you know, really sort of started with that Earth image, right, of, from the Apollo missions. And that was quite significant. But as some critics point out, it wasn't effective enough because we're still in this crisis. So it wasn't like that one image or those few images were effective enough to really switch the collective psychological basis. But what has changed since then is there's been a lot of technological advancement that has enabled technology like VR that really is able to transport us into more interactive experience that I think is the closest thing we can possibly get to an outer space experience on Earth. I also had that question about the exhibit down, so I'm glad, Chris, that you asked that. I know it may seem like it, but I don't want to hog all the questions. But as I was reading the paper, I actually made what I called an eco-transcendent checklist, which I might put into a little PDF download and like send around. Because I thought I was reading to it, I was like, okay, if we're going to make something, one, like if I was going to do a tick box, does it create awe? Actually, I don't have vastness in there. I missed it. So now there's six things. I'm just going to write that down, vastness. Okay. Does it create awe? Does it create wonder? Does it show the, number three, the interconnectedness of all life? Number four, the responsibility we have. Number five, fragility, which is also about that thin blue layer, which I think there's a particular blue that's like, there's something about it. And then six, vastness. So if you were trying to figure out how to make a museum exhibit, you would maybe think of all those like six things. Do you think that sort of hits the nail on the head, Anais? Yes, exactly. I would just really emphasize the perceptual or the conceptual vastness. So those are two different ways to achieve that. What I talked about is more the perceptual, like using VR and basically like what you can see and really trying to understand those distances and the scales. And conceptual vastness can also be someone looking at the Voyager images. I've experienced this myself, just looking at the pale blue dot picture, you know, from I think, I don't know which Voyager it was, one or two. But that's also a sense of vastness that can really affect you, I think. Yeah, totally, totally. Now, okay, everybody's putting their hand up now. Rebecca, your next question. Yes, I'm going to ask my question. And then after that, we'll have Yeled, Sarah, and Javier. So my question is, we were talking about Maslow's hierarchy and having the perspective at the very top. But I'm also wondering... I haven't gotten a chance to read her book yet, but Catherine Hayhoe has written a book called Saving Us, where she is looking at it, not from the perspective of, oh, the poor bears and looking at saving the earth, because she says the earth will be here regardless, but it's about actually saving ourselves. And so in that case, we're really looking at the bottom levels of Maslow's hierarchy And I'm wondering if that view of the earth from outer space, and when we're talking at that small blue dot, I'm thinking that we can also look at that from the bottom levels of Maslow's hierarchy and showing how fragile we are and how small we are and how fragile we are. And maybe we can bring those self-protective kind of reactions as well. Yeah, exactly. I think it's exactly that sort of fragility that, you know, it's not just sort of life on earth, but actually... Some of the astronauts talked about this as well, but the fragility of our existence on this planet. And as exactly as you mentioned, the planet will be here at least until, you know, the sun is working, our star is working, but the planet will be here. Of course, what's not guaranteed is whether we survive or like how long we survive. Even if humanity, you know, were to disappear, there's still the question of in what state would we leave this planet? Because, you know, there's been, for example, mass extinctions before, but to what extent would we be leaving a poor planet or like that lack of richness behind? And now I'm going a little bit off topic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
I think you raise a very important point. I was just thinking about it from trying to find ways to communicate with people and trying to find what's important to people. And if we can hit them with that same imagery to possibly hit them at two different levels, it just doubles our ability to maybe reach people. Right, exactly. And that's actually something that one of the astronauts said is that the survival of humanity is not guaranteed. And you can see that very clearly from space. So exactly as you mentioned, it's both that top level of the bigger picture but also maybe tapping into our survival instinct that, well, actually, this is an existential threat. Like we're destroying the only planet that we know to be habitable. So that is an existential threat and affects every single person that is the responsibility of every single person. Yeah, and it made me think we've all been talking about maybe a kind of like an empathy for the planet or ecosystems, but an empathy for all the humans. You look down, you're like, oh my God, that's all these billions of little humans living out their lives. You'd like to think that most of us know that most people in the world are quite poor and live in developing countries and everybody's just down there like, you know, trying to make it through their day. Let's try to (laughs) do it the best we can. Okay, anyway, next is Yaled. Hi, so I was also uh, researching VR and... The power really is in the multi-sensory. The more senses you can get into it, the more you trick your brain. So I think it's a bit optimistic to think that just by showing people Earth on VR, we're going to trick them to get that same sensation. So I was wondering if you're thinking about combining haptic chairs or other fans or things that will give them that feeling that they're moving. That's one question. And then the other is, I think that the real biggest problem brains have in dealing with climate is the long term. We are not as evolutionary creatures meant to think so long ahead of time. And the actions that we do now are just going to affect us in 20 years. And there has been VR research you might be aware of around, you know, saving for retirement or stopping to smoke, like thinking about your very long term future self. People were shown their future selves. And that was helping them. So if there was a way to, yeah, show people the future Earth based on their actions, you know, like a type of little game that they do. And maybe that is a way for people to start thinking long term. Yeah, absolutely. And that has definitely been one of the biggest barriers, I think, to collective action is that we're not wired to think that long term. But I think what really surprised me in these interviews is that this is happening right now. These astronauts can see the destruction with the naked eye currently from the ISS. So I'm almost thinking, and of course, I'm just starting out really on continuing this research, but we don't even have to show a future simulation of what it will look like. It's enough to show them actual footage of how the planet already looks and the destruction that we've already done because it's affected these astronauts very deeply because they were also not expecting it. And I was not expecting it, that it it would already be, you know, so significant. I'm definitely brainstorming, but I'm also potentially thinking a combined underwater simulation with VR, because that is the closest we can perhaps get to like zero gravity. Or a float tank. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. I was thinking through the same things you led thinking through. I was thinking something that was more like a 45 minute like meditation, like an eyes open meditation with like an audio. So you'd have like the audio. You know, I think you'd have to put someone in a bit of a slightly altered state of consciousness. You couldn't just be like, let's watch a five minute movie and I'll just have David Attenborough talking about the planet, you know. But our next question is Sarah and Sarah is a professional exhibit designer. So I bet she's got something interesting to say about this. Sarah, <laughs> are you there? Yeah, I'm loving all the conversations about how can we turn these into exhibit experiences. I'm taking notes. So this is great. I also have two questions. One of them, I work in an aquarium and we 
we're always trying to tap into this sense of awe and wonder. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it on this large scale, like having the vastness of it. And that's the way to introduce this awe and wonder. Do you think those types of effects are translatable to more intimate experiences? Because, you know, when we do like animal encounters, for example, like there's definitely an awe and wonder component that comes with that when a person has a moment with an animal or like touches an animal for the first time. And so we try to tap into that and then making that connection from like that momentary sense of awe and wonder and translating that into a longer term effect. How do we harness that and use that for our environmental message? How do we get them to take action after they leave? Like we're always trying to figure out how do we extend that effect into the post-visit experience? So we'd appreciate your thoughts on that. And then my other question is about personal action versus political and corporate action. So a conversation that's been coming up a lot on our team is we want to incorporate actionable items into our messaging, but there seems to be a sense of like, we can only tell people not to use plastic bags so many times. We can only tell people not to use plastic straws so many times. And, you know, they're like, at the end of the day, it's these large corporations and large political powers that have to take action. And I struggle with that a bit because I feel like, you know, it comes from both ends of the spectrum. But I guess I'm just curious to get your thoughts on this conversation of getting people to take personal action in their everyday lives and translating that to larger scale impact. That was kind of rambling, but... We're ramble-friendly communities, Sarah, yes, no problem. Yes, so yeah. many thoughts to get out. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, okay, so maybe addressing the first one, of course, it's always going to be a little bit tricky for how exactly do you frame it in a way that people leave and actually change something in their environmental behaviors. My question would be, if you're doing anything before these animal encounters or afterwards that sort of primes participants to thinking about it in an environmental sense. And one thing that we do with these animal encounters is that we always try to frame things through a framework of one, animal care and welfare, like making sure people understand that these animals are well cared for, like this is stimulating for them. Like we always make sure that our animal welfare comes first. So that's, of course, one thing of being an aquarium that you always have to consider. And then the other framework is always the broader context of like, where does this animal fit in in the wild? How does it fit into their habitat? and their broader ecosystem, and you know, what are some of the environmental issues that face these animals. And we try to build a framework of, you know, we really want you to care about this animal. Like, aren't they cool? They're so awesome. Like, don't you love them? And then trying to come up with messaging that inspires people beyond that encounter of like, hey, like this animal's wild counterparts are really suffering because of plastic pollution. Like, as soon as you leave the shed today, like you can stop using plastic bottles and get a reusable bottle and help in that small way. Yeah. Well, to me, that already sounds like a great approach. Like as long as you're doing something for the priming stage or like the nudging stage, I guess, mm -hmm. putting their mindset to that, then they have like sort of, again, the context, this has kind of been a key word. They have the context into which to put that personal, you know, sort of emotional experience. And that's when I think it's the most effective. Mm-hmm. To address your second question, yes, there's a very interesting thing happening, I think, both in the environmental movement community and also amongst the general public. I'm seeing a lot of pushback against personal responsibility when it comes to yeah, yeah the environmental crisis, which... Interesting. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. And I also understand where it's coming from. I really do. But I think there's a lot of nuance that gets lost mm-hmm. sometimes in that pushback, which is that, for example, even just talking about living in a Western country, like a high consumption, high emitting Western country, it's going to be fundamentally different from your personal responsibility in a low emission developing country. And I think in order to maximize that sort of that mitigation effectiveness, it really has to be a two-way solution, exactly as you mentioned. It has to be top down, because as you said, politicians and companies who have the biggest decision power but also has to be bottom up because let's not forget that, especially in these high emitting societies, consumers do hold a lot of sway. And there's been precedent to this where consumers push back against whether that was some sort of environmental health issue or, you know, some Absolutely. kind of ingredients. So there is sway power. It's not a black and white issue. And I think that's what's really, really important to remember and to push back against that narrative. I also think it's also part of that general polarization a bit of society and also that polarization of the way politics has been going and discussions and even language. I think we have to push back against that and say, actually, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And it's more complicated than that. And we can all do our part, especially if we're so privileged as to live in a Western country, for example. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I keep thinking about all of the major social changes and shifts that all result from like grassroots movements, the campaign against smoking, the campaigns for equal marriage rights, you know, all of these major social shifts that started with individual people and worked its way up the ranks to higher political levels. Like it always had to start with individuals coming together to take action. So I agree with your thoughts there. And it's an interesting conversation because I think people are starting to get frustrated with the lack of progress of like, okay, like we're trying to do all these individual actions, but now it's time for the top half of that spectrum to come meet us in the middle. And it's not happening yet. So, you know, something that we do is also encourage political action in our guests. So we have like a write a postcard to your local representative about this upcoming bill that's going to be happening. So we also combine political action with that to try to tie in like that, make the top down, meet the bottom up and bridge those two ends of the spectrum. Absolutely. And I really think, again, that's why it's so crucial because that is how change happens. Like unless, you know, politicians or business leaders are incentivized to change, which in the beginning, yes, it might be more difficult as, you know, we will transition our economy to a more sustainable Mm -hmm. one. That pressure, that push still has to come from the collective. It has to come from the bottom up. That is how these kinds of changes at least get started or they mobilize. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, thanks. I've actually, Sarah, been thinking about this a lot because people ask me about it all the time, almost every day, or they complain and say that I'm doing something wrong, you know, being interested in behavior design. So it's probably a little bit too much to go into in this call, but I've figured out a way to clarify this answer that I think really makes sense. But maybe if we've got time on the call, I will. But I just wanted to give Xavier a chance to ask his question. Xavier? Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I said your name wrong. Javier. Javier. Yeah, it's okay. Thank you very much. I mean, this is so interesting. The paper is really interesting. And I was interested mostly in the questionnaire that you asked the astronauts. Because you have like this number of questions. And first, of course, you start from a very basic, just to understand how they felt when they saw the Earth. Unfortunately, you had to rely on memory, which it's a shame because if you could get the people before they actually go to space, I'm sure you'll have very, very different results. 
And that's the part that would be exciting. But did they know already what your intention was with the interview, what you were trying to look for? I'm asking this because if they already knew, maybe that kind of biased their answers, trying to look for something that you would find interesting, like, oh, let's talk about environmental issues. I know you started introducing them as questions, especially after the first five questions. So I just wanted to know, I mean, how much of this was actually in them or how much was it elicited from the interview itself? And how would you in the future overcome this obstacle to try to get like less of a bias on what their perspective concerning environmental issues are? Also taking into account as astronauts, you cannot just have the same number amount of trash and so on. So they are trained to have an environmentally conscious attitude, this on one end. And very quickly, also, we were talking earlier about the real-time experience and how some of them report thinking about how they can see in real time the damage that is being done to Earth. But is this really the case? Most astronauts stay for a shorter periods of time. I mean, around six months at the top or something. I'm not sure how long each one of them stayed in their missions in space, but wouldn't it be kind of like, you know, you can see the ravages if they pointed up to you like, okay, this used to be trees or these spots is where the coral reefs are being damaged. I mean, I guess they have to be kind of informed about it. Or is it so obvious that you can just, oh, wow, look at where this used to be trees. Otherwise, I mean, looking at the, at the change in real time would, would be comparable maybe to watching paint peel from the wall. I'm sure that's not the case for most of them, that they can actually see it. But I'm just wondering about if there is actually a real-time experience. And but how to separate the feelings that you get when watching the Earth, your environmental, how does this affect your environmental concerns from everything else that probably goes through your body when you leave Earth and you see Earth without you in the From a phenomenology perspective, I mean, it's the whole phenomenon of going out of the Earth and There are so many other life-changing situations happening and so many emotions that I guess it must be really hard to isolate certain feelings or specific feelings about it. Okay, I've spoken enough. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And I love your work and thank you so much for doing this. Are you hoping to go to space and do this work yourself? Okay, yeah. Thanks for your questions. I'm going to go through them, but let me know if I missed something. That's why I called it an exploratory study because it relied on memory, which obviously there's much better ways to do that. And that is what I plan to do in my doctoral research. I only had about two, three months to do it because this was just for my master's thesis. So I did have to rely on memory, but I really tried to minimize participation bias. The initial interview request only said, I'd like to interview you about the intersection of, I think it was environmental issues and space exploration. And that was it. So I really tried not to get into details exactly in order not to bias them. And I do think that was successful because, as you can see, there's a great variation in the data. So people responded to this who weren't just, you know, having big changes or like very big positive effects, including actually two astronauts who were anthropogenic climate change and biodiversity loss deniers. Um, So I think that really shows that sort of that diversity of data that I do think that was mitigated pretty well. What I think your three questions kind of have in common is something as well that I identified is that a lot of these astronauts were very educated observers. Obviously, they had scientific backgrounds or engineering backgrounds. So yes, they had an enhanced understanding when looking at deforestation from space. Yes, that would be an educated, how do I identify this and all of that? But I think what's very exciting, and I will have to figure out exactly how this is done, But because astronauts, A, are educated observers, B, they're not known for displaying like a lot of excitement, like some of them come from military or even just the way they've been trained, they always have to sort of like keep their cool. So actually, there's a potential that this effect will be more pronounced actually in like the general public 
or even just decision makers who didn't train for years, you know, for a space flight, because it will potentially be even more shocking or like, you know, unexpected for them. Let me know if I missed something for the second question. But for the third question, I was personally not planning to. A, I always said like, I would never go on a one-way trip to Mars or anything. I love this planet. This is the best planet, <laughs> in my opinion. I do not want to leave it. I mean, it's just beautiful. In terms of space tourism, we've seen a lot of that actually happening this year with the Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. And even NASA said that they're going to open up the ISS to space tourism. I think for now, you know, that's very much reserved for the wealthy and stuff. But that's part of where, you know, targeting decision makers and business leaders would potentially play a significant role. Sorry, and I did just remember a part of your second question, which was that that's also part of something that I'm planning to do as a follow-up study. So doing pre-flight and post-flight surveys and then starting to quantify the data through that in addition to the VR research. Because yes, I think there's a lot more here to be unpacked. This was really just sort of the beginning and seeing whether it's worth to go deeper into this. And the answer is yes, because I'm here doing this research. <laughs> so you're going to, for the future, be potentially interviewing all the future space tourists that we don't know who they are yet, but possibly interviewing them before and after. The whole thing with like Jeff Bezos going in the whole space thing, you know, like mixed responses. Some people think it's really cool and exciting. Other people, it's like, ugh, billionaires doing this. But you know, I was just saying before about having to get a deeper transcendent effect for the type of people who have the ability to write a hundred million dollar check for something that is purely altruistic. I mean, that is something that only very wealthy, influential people have that kind of power in society. So getting these experiences to them, I mean, I was excited to see Jeff Bezos go to space because I was like, overview effect, maybe he's going to have it. Like he could affect that big supply chain with Amazon. And maybe this space tourism could help create this effect in just not a large number of people, but a few influential people. And they're also part of influential circles. So there's them and they could remember there's all their friends and their friends, friends and their families, you know, like it might do something special in the Earth's history. Yeah, exactly. And there's a bit of a tension here because I mean, space flights do have a measurable environmental impact, you know. There's also the problem of like space debris or stratospheric ozone depletion. And there's these different issues. But this is where maybe that intent versus impact oriented approach comes in for environmental behaviors that the impact of a space flight might be, you know, not insignificant. But if we target top decision makers who really, you know, as you said, who are the ones calling the shots and can really make measurable or significant change from the top down level, then that can potentially balance out and get us going on the path that we should be on in terms of environmental action. And I wanted to ask you about astronauts as ambassadors and kids, because in your paper, it says, you know, everybody loves astronauts. Astronauts are really exciting to me. I actually, do you know Rainbow Mansion in Cupertino, where some astronauts live? Oh, it's just like, it's a really big house and it's in Silicon Valley and you can go and stay there like week by week. You know, a lot of these big houses, they have people that live there permanently and then people who just sort of live on bunks. Anyway, I stayed there for a couple of weeks, quite a few years ago. And there were like real astronauts there. They were just actually very normal, ordinary people training at NASA. But I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, I'm living in a house like with real legitimate astronauts who like work at NASA. And obviously they probably get that all the time and they're just like, go away, another person. No, but then I got to join them and they're just, I don't know, kind of like anyone else you'd meet in engineering school or whatever, but it was a real thrill. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that you talk about astronauts being able to be these kind of like Earth ambassadors. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something going on. And then I found this line, which says, and I copied it, there appears to be no collective effort to strategically utilize astronauts for increasing broader environmental awareness and engagement. 
this potential remains under-realized. So what you're saying is there's nothing going on with NASA. I'm assuming NASA is the only organization. Or oh, there's the European sort of equivalent of NASA. I can't remember what they're called. The ESA. Uh, ESA, European yeah. Space Agency. Like there's nothing happening and can we make it happen? It's got to be funded somehow, but someone is funding astronauts to go on school tours and talk about it and that's not happening. Can we make it happen? Well, I think there's a lot of individual effort. And that was part of what surprised me in these interviews is how many of them just by themselves brought up, oh, yes, every time I hold a presentation, whether to business leaders or to other scientists or whatever, I always make sure to bring up the environmental message and how you can see the destruction from space and all of that, which I was, again, not expecting. I think there are efforts, but they're a bit more isolated and more agency dependent, like whether that's NASA or ESA or JAXA or any of the other ones. To my knowledge, there is no collective effort that's between all the space agencies collectively using astronauts or asking them to participate in any sort of environmental messaging. And I really think that could potentially be a game changer. I mean, if it would be a well enough designed campaign, perhaps something from like an international organization related to, you know, COP26 is coming up or something at the grand enough scale that can speak to everyone, doesn't matter where you're from or what your background is. I really think that would be the most strategic application. I do some freelance contract work for UNEP and they're all in with World Economic Forum and the WWF and Greenpeace and these big universities. There's all these large international organizations that work on these big things, COP26 and all that. And I've never heard anyone mention anything about astronauts as ambassadors and there's also a complete disconnect with getting through to children because schools are kind of difficult to get into and there's not really any money like nobody will pay you to go and speak at a school to the younger generation who would probably be the most excited about it although I mean I really enjoy it we probably all like the idea of speaking to kids but there's only so much you can do as a volunteer right I mean there probably is some scope for some kind of more coordinated fashion of bringing all that together it's a shame that children are so immediately financially unviable because they're so important and everything to do with schools and with being able to sort of get to them. But there's no like startup model or like a sort of business model there, even though it's where the future lies. Just so we don't go too much over time, although we always do, does anybody have a question they want to ask before I ask the final questions to wrap up? Okay. Sarah says she wants an astronaut to come. You know, we need an astronaut speakers agency, like a little agency because, hey, get your astronaut here and everybody can get paid for it. Just before I forget, I'm going to share my LinkedIn just because I wasn't able to pay attention to all the comments while I was talking, please add me on LinkedIn and send me a message just sort of explaining, you know, your background or your research or what you do. So, you know, just to make sure that I remember you and please feel free to connect because I've heard some very interesting backgrounds and research and occupation here. Yes, please do. It's what's great about the group. Everybody can connect with each other. So it's a bit more human than just this more like webinar lecture format. Okay, well, I'm just going to ask my final wrap up questions. So if you could go 100 years in the future where the earth and the planet and the environment is in a much better, ideally as utopian as possible situation, what's one thing that you would have happen that you think would be like the missing link or the keystone for us to get to that future or just something that you would like to see that is fun for you? I think the key would be is that there was a psychological change on the collective level. Because I really think that's actually the key of the issue. I mean, technology, science, these are all things that are sort of rapidly developing and we will continue to develop them. But it's really our psychological approach to how we think about nature, how we treat nature and how we treat this planet and how we choose to continue to exist on it. My hope would be that it would be 
this collective understanding that, oh, actually, we are a part of nature, we're not separate from it. And this is all part of one socio-ecological system. And what are you most excited about researching in the future in your PhD and rest of life, anything? Yes, I think there's a lot more to this topic. As I said, this was just an exploratory study. So I'm really excited to go down the different paths that I think this study sort of opened up using VR, using surveys, all of that. I'm also just more generally getting into environmental psychology. I'm really interested in eco-anxiety and eco-depression. And there's been a lot of emerging research about this too, identifying it as very real challenges that especially the younger generation, a lot of kids are dealing with it actually. And just generally, yeah, sustainable lifestyles, you know, sustainable diets, anything related, I guess, broadly to how we exist on this planet. Yeah, sorry, that was meant to be the wrapping up question, but I just think that that eco-anxiety, fear and doom, you could not have a more polar opposite sensation to the wonder and the awe that's core to this topic. And I just think that they're as far apart as possible, but perhaps they're the answer, like one is the antidote to the other or bringing them and sort of an understanding that combination between the two. And I suppose that's something that we can keep learning from your research and maybe we can check back in in six years when you've done it. We'll do the call again, do an update. Yeah, hopefully four or five years. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) This was wonderful. It's a beautiful, wonderful topic to explore. I hope lots of people get a chance to listen to the podcast and people can catch up with you and your LinkedIn. We've been here speaking with Anais Foskey about the overview and from astronauts. We've never done this before, but I want to do a round of applause. Rebecca, okay, thank you so much. Okay. Fabulous. Bravo. Thanks so much, Anais. It was wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast. It's an incredible journey to understand all of this academic research and be able to share it with this incredibly nurturing and loving community. I am thrilled to have the How to Save the World podcast partnered with some of my favorite groups in environmental design and technology. Our first partner is a group called EarthHacks. EarthHacks runs environmental hackathons about once a month where they gather all sorts of technology folk, computer programmers, GIS people, designers, engineers, and just about anybody to get together for a weekend hackathon and dive into these fascinating environmental technology problems. I definitely support getting involved in Earth Hacks. If you're into technology or computers or data and the planet in any way, you will love Earth Hacks. And you can sign up and join their hackathons at earthhacks.io. Our second partner is a group called Climate Designers, run by my friends Mark and Sarah. And Climate Designers is a group bringing together all types of designers from all disciplines of design and asking the question, how can we use design to help solve climate change? They've pulled together an amazing group of people from around the world and they hold events and a podcast and they run a community on the platform MightyWorks. And you can sign up and join their group at climatedesigners.org. And our third partner is a really cool group called Conservation X. Conservation X runs all types of innovation challenges and partnerships to try and invent and come up with new ways of, of cutting edge technology to help with the conservation movement's greatest problems. And Conservation X 
X has really come out of this small-scale DIY hacker put-it-together-yourself space with conservation and it encourages people to start building their own technology. And you should jump onto their website at conservationxlabs.com to check out their current programs. And they also have a podcast that you can check out called Explore. The links to sign up to these really cool partner groups are in the show notes below. You may have noticed that I produce several projects that you might like to sign up to and check out to see if it's useful for your sustainability and climate work and interests. The first one is Energy Lollipop. It's a Chrome extension that shows you the real-time emissions of the Californian electricity grid with a bold color to signify its intensity. And it's really fun data to watch because it fluctuates wildly. Our electricity is almost completely clean during the day because California has so much solar, but then it jumps up around dinner time when the sun goes down to be really dirty. And oh my God, you should see it when we have a heat wave. The CO2 literally jumps off the chart and the emissions go into the black color zone. The Energy Lollipop Chrome extension really shows us how carbon intensive heat waves and air conditioning really is. And it also shows us how important it is to to try and nudge people to shift their electricity consumption behaviors from this peak CO2 evening zone at around dinner time over to the middle of the day where our grid's electricity is mostly created by solar. It also tells a powerful story about why we need better energy storage. Energy storage meaning batteries. It's great to have clean energy during the day, but what do we do when it gets dark? So jump on to the Google Chrome store and type in energy lollipop and you'll be able to install the Chrome extension there and you can find out more about it at energylollipop.com. The second thing I do is called Urban Canopy and it is all about getting urban heat island data and putting it together with behavioral science. I worked with NASA JPL to develop a process of creating high resolution maps of urban heat islands using freely available data. We can put these maps together of the surface temperature of cities with pretty high granularity and then calculate the average surface temperature of every single land parcel. And this is where the behavioral science magic comes in. Once we have the data for every single land parcel, the data being the surface temperature of that land, then we can compare them against each other. And nothing taps into the motivational core of the human mind quite like being compared to our neighbors. If you think a thermal land surface temperature map like this could be good for your city, have a look at urbancanopy.io or send me a message and we can see how we can create a tool like this for you. If you are bored of the climate doom message and you want to focus more on solutions and you love the idea of an ecotopia future, sign up to this group I've set up called the Imagine Project. Now, I love eco cities and eco utopias, and I love the idea that we can actually create an environmentally sustainable biophilic world one day. I set up the Imagine Project to bring people together who also want to dream of this better world. It's a network of people who have this similar aspiration and we get together about once a month to make before and after artworks of urban spaces where we take a photograph of an urban space that is ugly or sad or decrepit and we take it into a graphic design program and make it beautiful with trees and green walls and animals and color. And the process of reimagining these urban spaces has an almost magical effect on the person making these artworks and they're really fun to see. There's almost a transcendental quality 
possibility of looking at a hard paved surface urban space with no nature and no art and no love and then looking at what it could be if it came alive. It's a really fun process so you can sign up to that at katiepatrick.com forward slash imagine. I also have a book on the Amazon Kindle store called Zero Wasteify. It's a tutorial of over 150 zero waste living tips with some fun data and infographics. And the book really dives into how important it is that we look at the environmental impact of the supply chain of the ingredients of our products instead of taking this extremely limited view of recycling and only looking at the environmental impact of products once we've already used them. The book is called Zero Wasteify, Mastering the Art of Zero Waste Living and it's available on Kindle. And the fifth main thing I do, of course, is my book, How to Save the World, that's available on Amazon, on Kindle. It's also an audiobook on Audible. I have a course on udemy.com that's about how to apply gamification and behavior to environmental issues. And you can get started with that when you sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And thank you to our amazing guests who have joined us on the show. And of course, for your interest in the amazing world of environmental psychology. Now, let's get out there and make saving the world the greatest game we've ever played. <laughs>